Jesus' name, amen. Visual images are arresting. Several years ago, while driving through Glenwood Canyon in Colorado, the beauty of my surroundings, the intricately carved rock walls decorated with a variety of colors soaring above me, forced me to pull off of I-70 and almost breathlessly soak in the scenery. Conversely, visual images can also provoke emotional responses that fill us with dread, horror, or disgust. I'm sure that many of you have been to the Holocaust Museum across the river. If so, you can probably attest to the fact that the museum's striking images carved a hole in your soul. And our text for this evening speaks to the power of images, both visual imagery and and images created by words. In John 19, the Apostle John relates the horror invoked by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 35, John pauses the narrative to insist that the terrible scene that he's describing is true because he was there. He saw Jesus' crucifixion. The horrifying scene happened, and he's given us, the readers, an eyewitness account. But, and thankfully, that terrible scene contains the faith-building story of God's plan to save a people unto himself. And that beautiful story is sunk deep into our text for this evening, John 19.37. And in order to allow the full contextual weight of the crucifixion story to wash over us, I'm going to reread John's account. So if you haven't already, please turn to John 19, which can be found on page 905 of the Bibles provided in the pews. I'll begin reading in verse 16 and continue through verse 37. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and, and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Within verse 37, we see at least three things. One, the revelation of who Jesus is. Two, that revelation requires a response. And three, one day everyone will receive just recompense based on their response. And those three things comprise my outline for this evening. Revelation, response, and recompense. As the Apostle John notes, verse 37 includes a quotation from the Hebrew Scriptures. Specifically, Zechariah 12.10. And to help provide us with the immediate context, please turn to Zechariah 12 which can be found on page 798 in the Bibles provided in the pews. And since Zechariah isn't necessarily easy to find, I will stall a bit. It's not the hardest book to find. That would be Hezekiah. There's no Hezekiah. If you did sword drills when you were a kid, you got that joke. I will be reading Zechariah 12, verse 1, and continuing through verse 10. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah." On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. 
And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. Briefly, the context of Zechariah 12 is the eschatological restoration and renewal of God's people. In the passage we just read, we see God's people marveling as God's plan of salvation unfolds. In contrast, those who are not God's people are brought to their knees in defeat as God seeks to destroy all the nations that stand in opposition to His people. And the sign that this salvation has arrived is unwrapped when the one whom they have pierced is revealed. Turning back to John 19.37, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, clearly declares that Jesus Christ, who died an agonizing death on the cross, is the one who provides the salvation to God's people that the prophets wrote about. And this is our first point, Revelation. In verse 37, the Apostle John plainly reveals that the one through whom salvation comes, prior to the physical revelation of Jesus Christ, God's plan of salvation had been shrouded in typology and imagery. From the very beginning, God declared His plan. But He declared it in ways that that kept people looking ahead, looking forward to the final fulfillment. From immediately after the fall, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised to send a Redeemer to crush the head of the serpent. Within that promise, though, it's revealed that before being crushed, the serpent will strike the Redeemer. The Redeemer's victory will come with a steep price. Throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, the imagery pointing to the Messiah is dripping with the blood of the innocent. So although the Old Testament people of God only saw the Messiah through shadows and types, the revelation of God's salvation through Jesus Christ at the cross wasn't a sudden reversal of the story. With his testimony of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John was not creating anything new. He was simply unveiling God's promise first made in Genesis 3.15 and expounded on even further throughout the Old Testament and specifically for us this evening in Zechariah 12.10. The revelation of Jesus Christ as the individual whose side was pierced is the revelation of God's plan of salvation. And it's a plan of salvation that has been revealed in and through history. The story of Jesus Christ isn't a myth that merely holds spiritual comfort and lessons. Jesus Christ lived in a specific time and place and suffered physical torture and death. The Apostle John understood that the Christian faith, our faith, the Christian hope, our hope, must be grounded in a literal historical event. This is why he breaks into the narrative and insisted that he saw throughout the narrative of the Old Testament the imagery pointing to the Messiah is dripping with the blood of the innocent. So although the Old Testament people of God only saw the Messiah through shadows and types, the revelation of God's salvation through Jesus Christ at the cross wasn't a sudden reversal of the story. With his testimony of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John was not creating anything new. He was simply unveiling God's promise first made in Genesis 3.15 
and expounded on even further throughout the Old Testament and specifically for us this evening in Zechariah 12.10. The revelation of Jesus Christ as the individual whose side was pierced is the revelation of God's plan of salvation. And it's a plan of salvation that has been revealed in and through history. The story of Jesus Christ isn't a myth that merely holds spiritual comfort and lessons. Jesus Christ lived in a specific time and place and suffered physical torture and death. The Apostle John understood that the Christian faith, our faith, the Christian hope, our hope, must be grounded in a literal historical event. This is why he breaks into the narrative and insisted that he saw this historical event with his own two eyes. And this is why he connects the story of the crucifixion with the prophecy of Zechariah 12.10. The hope of God's salvation has physically arrived. And this hope suffered the physical agony on the cross before having his side pierced in death. Christianity is a faith with its roots and hope planted in the dust of this earth, formed as the man Christ Jesus. And there is no wiggle room around what John is claiming in chapter 19. Is it any wonder that the first book of the Bible, many apostates try to diminish as the book of John? Because there is no wiggle room around what John is claiming in chapter 19. Jesus is God's salvation. And like the prophet Zechariah, the apostle John is compelling us to keep our eyes ahead. Because God's salvation is not finished. Brothers and sisters, this is not it. This broken life isn't our final hope. Our salvation is not complete. We look forward to the day of our King's return because if Jesus has been revealed as the one whose side was pierced, and He has, that means He will one day bring the enemies of God's people to destruction in contrast to the blessings heaped on those whose salvation is in Him. Directly connecting Jesus with the prophetic hope of Zechariah means that the revelation of Jesus is universal even if the results and benefits that flow to the individual are not. And just so that I'm not misunderstood, I'm going to repeat that. Directly connecting Jesus with the prophetic hope of Zechariah means that the revelation of Jesus is universal. The revelation of Jesus is universal. Even if the results and benefits that flow to individuals are not. The ancient people of God had expectations of what would happen when God revealed His Messiah. And those expectations were dependent on an individual's standing before God. Since the revelation of the one whose side was pierced includes future action on his part, we can't sit in quiet contemplation in hopes to merely glean helpful or even moral instruction from the man Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just an example of how to live a good life. The revelation of who Jesus is confronts everyone with a decision. And this is our second point. The one who is pierced demands a response. In Zechariah 12, there are two distinct peoples. One is, of course, God's people. The other group are those who oppose God's people and hence oppose God. Zechariah 12.10 explains who the they are who have pierced Jesus. According to Zechariah, the they refers to the children of God. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. The house of David, the people of God, pierced Jesus. 
Isaiah 53, 5 tells us that he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, the reason that God promised to send a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent was because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Sin, our individual sin, has created a divide between all humans and God. To become one of God's people requires our sin to be dealt with. And since God is fully righteous and just, He can't overlook our sin. This is why the Redeemer had to be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus took the just punishment of our sins on Himself. He who lived a sinless life in order to fulfill God's righteous demand for complete obedience was punished for the sins of God's people. The people of God pierced Jesus. And when confronted by Jesus... When God revealed His plan of salvation to the people of Judah in Zechariah 12, the people of God responded with Holy Spirit-provided pleas of mercy. Recognizing their role in His death, the revelation of Jesus as the suffering Savior prompted the response of contrition in God's people. However, there is another passage in the New Testament that provides evidence of another group of people who took part in piercing Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle John tells us that those who opposed Jesus also pierced him. Verse 7 of Revelation 1 concludes with, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on his account. There is coming another final revelation in which the entire human race will be physically confronted with who Jesus is. And as John writes, those who are not God's people will wail in agony after being confronted by the one whom they've pierced. All humans are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. All humans have participated in the rebellion that pierced Jesus. And all humans respond to the revelation of who He is. Those who are counted as the people of God respond with faith and repentance. And the gospel isn't a one-off message. For Christians, like like our brothers and sisters in Christ in Zechariah 12, those of us who have responded to Jesus and Holy Spirit provided faith and repentance should be constantly thanking God with faithful and contrite hearts for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. In a few moments, Lord willing, we'll be celebrating communion. While we eat the bread and drink the cup, we will be rehearsing the wonderful truth of how Jesus Christ gave His body and His blood to wash away our sins. Communion is a visible demonstration of our response in faith to the one whom we've pierced. If you're not a Christian, while you're observing us as we take communion, ask yourself how you've responded to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, that means that you've rejected who he is. You're claiming that you don't need his life, death, and resurrection to bridge the gap between you and God. And if you haven't responded to Jesus in faith and repentance... You're claiming that your role in the piercing of God's Son means nothing. That's your response, the rejection of Jesus. And that's a terrible position to be in because everyone will one day receive just recompense for their response to the one who was pierced. And that's our third and final point, recompense. 
In John 19.37, the Apostle John doesn't allow readers the chance to brush off the crucifixion as a one-off event that may serve as an example of loving self-sacrifice. John's use of the Zechariah quote explicitly contradicts the popular belief that Jesus' death didn't atone for sins and is without any eschatological import. Many today view Jesus as a moral guru who demonstrated a way forward to salvation. Except, according to the Bible, and specifically John 19.37, Jesus is salvation. And his death has, ex- has extreme eschatological import. First century Jews who read John 19.37 would have immediately picked up on the full context of John's claim. They would not have missed that the promised Redeemer in Zechariah 12.10 brings blessings to those who are His and judgment to those who are not His. For Christians, the knowledge that one day our Savior and King is going to return to complete our salvation should fill our hearts with praise, great joy, and boldness. Rehearsing the gospel on a daily basis is a means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses to provide us with endurance. Because our King was pierced, our hope is sure. Because our King took on the punishment for our sins, we are going to live forever in complete and full communion with our Creator and King. The realization of our coming recompense should cause us to boldly live lives that bring honor to our King. Out of thankfulness, we should be devoted to sharing the gospel with our friends, family, and co-workers who have yet to bow the knee in faith and repentance to King Jesus. If you're not a follower of King Jesus, like those in Revelation 1-7, you will one day well in agony and regret at the final revelation of Jesus Christ. The recompense for your response of rejection will be that of eternal punishment. But that day hasn't arrived yet. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still, still available for you to claim by a humble response of faith and repentance, placing your entire hope and identity in King Jesus. So please, I urge you to abandon your rejection of Jesus and instead accept Him in the salvation that He has accomplished. As Good Friday comes to a close, and we enter the glorious reminder of Easter that the suffering servant didn't stay dead, but rose from the grave, don't ignore God's revelation of who is the one whose side was pierced. Does your life reflect a response of humble gratefulness that's manifest in love and obedience towards God? Or are you, like the nations of Revelation 1-7, who will one day well on account of Him? Repent and believe in the one whose side you pierced. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing your plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. Renew the faith of your people tonight. Give us grace and boldness to declare how and why our King was pierced for us. Cause us to live lives of thankful obedience that honor and glorify your great name. Father, if there is anyone here this evening who does not yet know you, please reveal yourself to them and provide them with saving faith and repentance. Make them your own for the sake of your eternal kingdom and for your infinite glory. In all this we pray in the name of your Son and our great King and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.